Let's turn our attention to God's Word. We are finishing our series in the book of Hebrews this morning. Uh, This wonderful book that's been proclaiming the greatness of Christ, His superiority over everything else. We get to finish in a really fun way that sees how we respond to that greatness. If Jesus is greater than everything else, what is our life supposed to look like in response? So open up, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read for us the first six verses. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For, what he, uh, for he has said, I will never leave or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Now, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We don't just say that because it's something nice to say after we read scripture, but it reminds our hearts that we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. I pray you would continue to do that this morning. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, soften us so that we might hear the good news of the gospel, so that we might be changed, so that we might respond and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I certainly hope you have seen uh, the movie Three Amigos. If, if, if you haven't, um, you're welcome to come to my house and borrow the DVD. Uh, it's kind of a must. In fact, um, we probably can't be friends until you do see it. But if you've seen it, you probably remember this great, uh, this great scene where the Amigos, who are actors, are headed to Mexico in response to this message that was sent them. They think they're going to put on a show with the famous El Guapo. And they think that they're going to make a killing putting on this show with El Guapo. Of course, they're not going to put on a show. They were going actually to fight the not famous but infamous and terrible El Guapo. They just don't know that yet. But they're all laying down and they're dreaming about what they're going to do with the riches that are going to come with this great show. And they ask each other, what are you going to do after you get paid? And uh, Lucky says, I'm going to buy a big, fancy car, silver, long, beautiful car, and I'm going to drive down the streets of Hollywood, and I'm going to show old Flugelman, who's their old boss, a thing or two, and I'm driving that car. And Dusty says, uh, Paris, New York, Champagne, you know, live like a big shot for a little while. And then they say, what about you, Ned, who's the the third member? And Ned says, I'm going to start a nonprofit for orphan kids. And they all say, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, like that's what we're, you know, after the, you know, the car was going to be after the orphanage, right? We ask that question to each other sometimes too, you know, and we'll say, okay, if you won the lottery, what would you do? How would you live your life if you won the lottery? And you get all kinds of answers to that question. You'll have people say, well, I'd, you know, I'd spend it drilling wells for people who don't have clean water to drink, or I'd quit my terrible job immediately, or, and this is the one you're always supposed to say, you know, I'd do nothing else, I'd have the same life, I'd work my same job because I'm so perfectly content right now. That question gets really at the heart, I think, of a pretty fundamental human question, which is, if you were totally cared for, if you had everything that you need, 
how would you live your life? If you had everything that you needed, how would it change how you lived your life? That's really the question that this passage deals with. It proclaims, again, who Jesus is, and we've seen it all throughout the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than angels, than Moses, than the sacrificial law, than the old covenant, than everything that has come before. And if Jesus is greater, how should we then live our lives? In fact, we read at the end of this passage these amazing words that God will never leave us or forsake us, that we shouldn't fear because God actually cares for us. Friends, if you are a Christian, you have won the lottery. You have been given everything that you need. You have been provided for in an amazing way. Your deepest desires have been met. The thing you need most in your life to be made right with God has been given to you in Christ. So how does it change the way that we live our lives? What does a life look like that is lived out of that sort of security? out of that sort of feeling of being okay. Well, what we get here is really a description of that. We get a description of the fact that the gospel actually reorders our life. And we're told here that it reorders it in four different ways. That the gospel, and when I say that, I mean the fact that Jesus has actually given us everything that we need and that we are totally safe and secure in Him. It reorders the way that we love each other. It reorders the way that we love our neighbors it reorders our understanding of marriage and sex, and it reorders our understanding of money and how we deal with it. So it changes our love of each other, our changes our love of neighbor, it changes our, 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 our understanding of sex and marriage, and it changes our understanding of finances. Let's go through those four together today. Here's the first one, is that we are told that the gospel reorders the way that we understand each other. We open up and we're told, first of all, in the very first verse we read, let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love. The gospel often, when it talks about the way that we are to relate to each other in the church, the image that is given is a family. We're told in Galatians that this is what God has done for us. He has adopted us into His family. And so not only is God our Father because of Jesus' work, but we now are brothers and sisters brought into the same household. And there's a few things about family, right, about brothers and sisters. Those relationships can be incredibly deep. They can also sometimes be very difficult, and you don't ever get to choose them. <laughs> this is also true about the church. There is a depth of relationship. There also can be difficulty in relationships, and the great part about being united to somebody else because of what Jesus has done is we didn't get to choose these people. You didn't get to choose each other. You're all here, as we often say, because we're all at the same hospital. We didn't choose to be here. God brought us here by His grace. So the image is of family, but really the activity that we're told here is one of friendship. Brotherly love is really about friendship. Now, that's an interesting word, I think, in our culture these days. Uh, I'm not really sure we've got a great handle on what friendship is. I think we know typically what it's not. We all have an understanding that, you know, friendship is not just me using somebody else for my own benefit, right? You're not my best friend because you have a boat, or you're not my friend because you can advance my career. Everybody looks and says, yeah, that's not really friendship. But, you know, is a Facebook friend 
a friend? That, is actually, that question has actually been legally answered recently, by the way. There was a judge in Florida that had to decide that as a Facebook friend, actually a friend, the answer was no. Probably affirms what most of us already thought is that a Facebook friend is not a real friend. So what is a friend? We have a decent idea of what it is, but what is, or what is not, but what is a friend? Well, here's one, uh, one uh, example or, or just one way of defining it is that a friend is someone who is actively pursuing the benefit of another. A friend is someone who is actively pursuing the benefit of another, who is actively, as we often say at Hope, moving toward someone else. That's the essence, really the heart in many ways of friendship, is to move toward other people, to move toward them in a way that actually seeks their good, to move toward them in a way that may be uncomfortable, to move toward them in a way that actually grows deeper and deeper into intimacy. This is what we want to see happen in our church. We want people moving toward each other. We want people's lives connected, intersecting, together. You know, there's a reason why uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has been so successful in the last hundred years, and the reason is when you get people together sharing their brokenness and difficulty, and being honest with one another, the Holy Spirit actually goes to work. When people get together and they're honest with each other, the Holy Spirit starts to kick in over time, and people bond. People bond and their lives change. So let me just ask, what would it look like in our church if we were moving toward each other maybe more fervently? What would it look like if before church you got here early just to talk to somebody, or you stayed late just to hang out and talk to someone and get to know a little bit more about them, just asking the question, tell me the best thing that's happened to you this week. That's a nice little icebreaker question. And then maybe the second part was, I'd love to continue that more. Can you come over for dinner this week? Or maybe you could come over for lunch right now. We've put something in the crock pot and we're ready for you. What would it look like if our lives were beginning to weave together more tightly? We have some great opportunities, actually, for this this fall. Uh, Looking really forward, in December, we're going to have a Christmas party. It's a time we get to just get together and hang out. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have a time where we get together and we pack boxes full of food that we're going to give to people who need that food. That's going to be a great bonding time, too. In October, we're going to try to do our, uh, our dinner parties, our Hope at the Table, again, just to get people in each other's homes and sitting down around a table and eating and talking. And then just next week, as you heard Jen say, we're having a party. And really, the reason we're having a party is because we want to have a party, okay? We want to get people together and have fun and enjoy one another. We've also got a men's Bible study started and some men's fellowship events that are going to be just to get men together to hang out. We've got women's Bible studies that are starting and women's fellowship events that have been happening for quite some time with the same idea. Let's just get together and know each other more fully so that it might actually be a step toward deeper intimacy, a step toward connection with one another. So let me just encourage you, Hope. Love each other like brothers and sisters. Move toward one another engage in each other's lives. Let's see the Lord go to work as we do. All right, second piece. The gospel not only uh, changes and reorders the way that we love one another, but also changes and reorders the way that we love our neighbors. Look at what he says here in the next verse. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. So the gospel reorders our way that we, that we deal with each other, but also re, uh, reorders the way that we deal with outsiders, strangers. That word hospitality, we throw it around in our culture. We think of it usually as the way that I prepare my home to be a nice place to be, or the way that we prepare food, or the way that we get together. All of those are true, but the word hospitality, actually that Greek word means love of strangers. It's philoxenius. Uh, Philadelphia was the word about love of brothers, so loving the brothers. And then it's loving strangers, people that you don't know, people that you haven't met, people that may be very different than you, people that, as we read here, may be in really difficult positions, in prison or just out of prison, in hurting, uh, hurting because of their relationships or because of their place in life, people who are mistreated. These are all strangers in our lives. Now, in the ancient world, you know, oftentimes this was travelers. This were people who were coming through town, and really the church was known for being those who welcomed in people that they didn't know who were traveling through town. It wasn't just relatives that were coming through, but really total strangers. Now, we don't get that all that often anymore, although I do know somebody who rode his bicycle from New York to Los Angeles and camped in people's backyards along the way. So, Every now and then, you might have a stranger come up to your yard and ask you if he can camp, but that usually doesn't happen to us as much, does it? The strangers in our lives are our neighbors. We live lives as strangers oftentimes. I can't tell you how many times I have driven my car into my, uh, into my garage, closed the garage door behind me, and walked into my house. I've never seen or interacted with my next-door neighbor. That's the way that we oftentimes live our lives. So how do we love the stranger? How do we love even the hurting person in our midst? How do we love the people who are outsiders to our body? We've used this illustration before that the church should be a family. Yes, we should act like a family, but we should act like a family who's expecting guests, who's expecting people to come over. Like a, like a huddle, but you often think about a huddle as people in a circle and they're all facing inward. We'll just take that and flip it outward. Those people are still together. They're just facing outward, looking for others to come in. I've got a couple of diagnostic questions to just, to just sit on this for just a second. And the first is this, is, is how do we make hope a place where it's safe for outsiders to come in? Maybe even particularly, how do we make hope a place that's safe for those who are hurting to come and be a part of us? How do we make hope, our community, a place that's safe for those who feel like they're mistreated to come and be loved and feel like they belong? That's a good question for us to chew on together. Here's a second one, maybe more individually, and this one's even harder. Not how do I make it safe for someone else but what are the ways in which I make it too safe for me that keeps others out? What are the ways in my life where I lift my own safety, my own desire, higher than my love of the outsider? The Lord tells us that He's not going to leave us or forsake us. He tells us that we don't have anything to fear. Yet so often in my life, 
I am working out of self-protection rather than out of pouring myself out for my neighbor. All right, let's move to the third piece. The gospel reorders the way that we love both insiders and outsiders, the way that we love each other and our neighbors. It also changes the way that we understand marriage and sex. Look again at what the text says, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Friends, the Bible actually speaks quite a bit about marriage, about singleness, about physical attraction. And let me say this really clearly, first of all. If you're single, the Bible actually speaks more highly of singleness than we oftentimes do in, our, in the church. The Bible actually speaks very highly of singleness. Paul specifically calls single people to engage the kingdom of God in a very particular way. If you are single, you are a very valuable member of God's kingdom. I want you to know that. But the Bible also speaks much more highly of marriage than our culture gives credit for. And at the same time, and this is the big shocker, the Bible also speaks more highly of sex than our culture gives credit for. We live in a culture that is highly sexualized, highly sexualized. In fact, uh, we'll talk about money in just a second, but we've mixed the two, right? So that, uh, so that sex has become commoditized and commodities have become sexualized. That's really our culture now. Sex sells, right? But the Bible actually speaks more highly of sex than our culture does. And what it says is that there is beauty in the way that God has made us as physical people, as emotional people, as whole people. And the way that the Bible actually talks about the way that husband and wife interact physically in marriage is both more beautiful and more, uh, and more challenging than our culture could ever understand. It's not just about physical pleasure, but the Bible actually talks about that pleasure being unbelievable. It's not just about procreation, but the Bible actually talks about the amazing fact that God works the miracle of life through a husband and a wife. It's not just about bonding, but the Bible talks about how deeply bonding and unifying the physical activity of husband and wife is. And conversely, what the Bible also says is that when we remove sex from marriage, whether it's that we remove it from a marriage or we, or we work outside of it, that actually something that is supposed to be beautiful and flourishing and amazing becomes very destructive. See, when you start to remove the two, you start to see unborn children die. You start to see disease spread. You start to see emotional brokenness and abuse. You start to see objectification of one sex versus the other. When you remove sex from marriage, it all starts to fall apart. Architectural uh, theorists will tell you that the fireplace in the home is one of the most important things. This is fascinating. If you talk to an architect, even an architect in the South, where we really don't need fireplaces, they will all want you to have a fireplace in your home because a fire is just amazing. It's beautiful to sit and watch. It's mesmerizing. It does something to us when we sit and it's just emotionally engaging. And that fire is incredible when it is held within the fireplace. But what happens when that fire moves outside the fireplace, under your curtains or your walls? It's utterly destructive. That's the way the Bible talks about sex and marriage. Wonderful, fulfilling in its place, terribly destructed outside of it. 
In fact, I don't know if you've ever um, done what I have done as a child, but the first time you ever played with super glue, and you got a little bit on your fingers, and you thought, oh, look, interesting, they, uh-oh, you know, and your mom, even though she told you, you know, five times, you stuck your fingers together with the super glue, and five seconds later, you couldn't get them apart. At least you couldn't get them apart without, you know, eventually losing some skin. That is also the way that God has made sex in marriage. It's supposed to unite us permanently. It's supposed to bond us. And when you take that bond apart, there's a tearing that happens. There is a removal of one side or the other. You lose skin. You lose something. The Bible speaks incredibly highly of sex and incredibly highly of marriage and speaks about them together in the way that they should be. The gospel reorients the way that we understand the physical nature of our, of our bodies and of marriage. All right, let's move on to the fourth one. The gospel also reorients our understanding of our finances. It reorients the way that we understand money. Look at this in verse uh, 6, verse 5, excuse me. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That word content is an interesting one, isn't it? Contentment, it's something that I deeply struggle with. I don't think I'm alone in that. The word is a fascinating one in Greek. It actually means to be thankful in the present. That's what contentment is, to be thankful in the present, to be thankful now. Let me let you in on a little secret. If you are not content now, you won't be. If you are not content now, you will actually never be content. Now, that, that's, that's not to say that your hearts can't change. What it is to say is that yours, there's never the next thing that's going to make you content. There's never the next house or car or level in your bank account or job or husband or wife that's going to make you content. If you are not content right now, you will not be. I heard a sermon on this the other day from a friend of mine. And he had laid out three different ways that we were to respond to this, and I thought they were really helpful. He said that with our money, we are to give thanks, we are to give up, and we are to give away. So let's walk through those really quickly. Giving thanks is a big part of contentment, isn't it? My mom actually painted our family a, a, a picture one year for Christmas, and it said, thankfulness leads to joy. She's right. That is true. Thankfulness actually leads to joy. If you've never tried this, and I don't try it often enough, just start to take account of the ways that God has blessed you. Take account and be thankful of what you have in your life, and you will actually see your joy increase. When we start to turn our attention onto the blessings we've been given, rather than the things that we feel like have been withheld from us, our joy and our contentment increases. Secondly, give up. And what we mean by that is, Give up on the idea that you need to compete with your neighbor to get ahead. Give up on the idea that you need to have everything that you want in order to be happy. Give up on the idea that you're in some sort of race to accumulate as much stuff as you can before the other people in your life accumulate it. Give up on the idea that your kid needs to have a better birthday party than the person down the street had. Give up on the idea that you always have to have what is next. 
We talked about this in our time of confession, right? To deny ourselves is actually to come and proclaim that Jesus cares for us. To deny ourselves is an act of worship and a proclamation that it's God who gives us what we need. So we can actually give things up in our lives. And then that's really closely related to the third one, which is give away. The Bible actually talks about how Christians, how God's people, really through the Bible, are to use their finances as an act actually of ministry, of worship. When we look at the way that the Bible talks about finances, the primary thing that we learn is that what we have does not belong to us. It belongs to God. He owns everything, and He has allowed us actually to take part in stewarding some of those things for the benefit of our neighbor and our family and the growing of His kingdom. And so when we give back, and that pattern has been 10% in Scripture, when we give back, it is an act of worship. It is a proclamation that God actually cares for me, that the things that I need most are not in my bank account that the things I need most are not in my garage or my closet, that God has actually given me what I need and I am full. And so I then can pour out to others. I read an amazing story about John Wesley the other day. John Wesley, part of the First Great Awakening, uh, founder of, of, of the Methodist Church. And uh, the way that he handled his finances was, was fascinating. He started as a student at Oxford, and he was paid an annual salary of 30 pounds a year. And as a student, he figured out how to very frugally live his life so that he could live on 28 pounds. So he lived on 28 pounds, he gave two pounds away. Well, as he then graduated and became a professor and started selling books, his, uh, his income gradually increased. And so the next year, you know, he made 40 pounds a year. He lived on 28 and gave away that two and the next ten. The next year, he doubled actually that, and he made 60 pounds a year. He continued to live on 28 pounds, and he gave away the rest. He would go to make 120 pounds a year regularly and continue to live on 28 pounds. And it was told that at one time, because of the royalties of his writing, he was making something more like 12 or 1,400 pounds a year, and he gave himself a little raise, and he lived on 30 pounds a year, and he gave away the rest. And the, the numbers are pretty amazing when you start to look at today's numbers. It's he was living basically on a teacher's salary for most of his life. That was fitting his needs, and over the course of his life, gave away multiple millions of dollars. He had simply said, I don't have to have this to be happy. And so he had poured it out to others. What would our lives look like if we had everything that we needed? How would that change the way that you and I lived? If we were totally secure relationally, if we were totally safe emotionally, if we were totally cared for, how would that change the way that we lived our lives? You know, we're so often driven by fear, aren't we? I'm afraid of moving towards somebody else because I don't, because I feel insecure. I don't like that feeling of insecurity. I'm afraid maybe that person will hurt me if I open myself to them. I'm afraid maybe that I won't know what to talk about if I talk to somebody who's in a different position of life than me or somebody who's really hurting or wounded. And so out of fear, I stay back. I'm afraid that I won't be fulfilled sexually, so I take that upon myself. 
I'm afraid that I won't be cared for financially, so I orient my whole life around getting the things that I want and accumulating stuff or money or whatever it is. But we're told here in this passage that the Lord has said He'll never leave us or forsake us. He has told us that He's given us everything that we need. He has told us that He loves us with a love that is deep and lasting. And love drives out fear. So let me leave you with the question. If you were fully cared for, if you had everything that you needed, how would it change your relationships? How would it change the way that you understand marriage and sex? How would it change the way that you understand finances? How would your life change if the gospel was bigger and your need was smaller? Let me pray for us, and then we'll just spend a couple moments pondering that question. Lord, we do, we do thank you, first and foremost, that um, our activity is not driven by, uh, or our identity is not driven by our activity. Lord, you tell us who we are. You tell us who you have made us to be. And it's not the way that we act that, that forms our identity. But Lord, our identity does inform our activity. And so because of who we are, because of who we've been made to be, will you reorder the things that we love in our hearts? Will you show us to be, Lord, those who pour ourselves out for others, who move toward others, who hold marriage and the marriage bed in highest esteem? Lord, who are those who are content with what we have so that we might proclaim your goodness in our own hearts and to the world around us? Show us how to do that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.